Good morning to each of you. It is good to be with you this morning. I've been away from this pulpit for a number of weeks. I have been preaching, however, um, just not to you folks. And I have to tell you that uh, as, as, as rewarding as it is to preach to folks uh, that you don't know, it is much better, I believe, to preach to people that you do know and people that know you. So uh, I'm going to enjoy that this morning. I invite your attention to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Uh, Kenton has already read a couple of verses from that passage. We're going to continue our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. We began this about a month ago uh, with the first chapter. And as we uh, just kind of review that briefly before we read the second chapter, we see that we have the preacher here. The preacher, uh, we, we say, is the, the King Solomon, probably in his later years, after he's had time to reflect on his life and the way things have went. And we see that this book is a search for meaning and purpose in life. And so we need to take heed, all of us, uh, that we learn the lessons that the preacher wants us to learn. But one of the first things he says here is that everything is vain. Everything is vanity. But he qualifies that by saying it's, it's vain, it's vanity under the sun. So in terms of an earthly perspective... All this stuff is pretty vain. It is fleeting. It's like chasing the wind. It's like, you know, on a, on a cold, frosty morning and you blow and you, you see, your, see your breath. It's like trying to catch that and, and keep it. You, you just can't do it. It's, it's that fleeting. So we have vanity. All is vanity, says the preacher. Everything under the sun, that is, without God, is, is worthless in the end. And so the, the preacher starts on this quest to find out what really does make the world go round. What really is uh, that which satisfies. And he gives us uh, some, some hints along the way about what the real true satisfaction is. And we're going to look at that today. But I invite you to turn now with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and we will read uh, this chapter. I'll actually start at the end of chapter 1 just to give us a bit of a context. Would you... Would you stand with me as, as I read Ecclesiastes chapter 2? We'll start with verse 16 of chapter 1. I said in my heart, I have acquired great, great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. 
I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be, a, whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray. Our Father, this is your word to us. It is a word that we need in this time, in this day and age. And we pray that you would work in our hearts through your Holy Spirit, that you would, that you would break this word to us and feed us and give us of your pleasures forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. You may be seated. Now this morning I'm going to do what the preacher does in this chapter. The preacher here <clears throat> gives you the, the, the thesis or the main point right up front. He tells you, he tells you what, what it is that he's going to do, and then he does it. And then he tells you how it worked. Okay? So what's what I'm going to do right now? He says he's going to test with pleasure. He's going to test this thing and see if it works. And then he says it's all vanity. So it, we know going in this isn't going to work, right? So what is the main point of this chapter? Well, the main point comes at the end when he sums it all up in verses 24 and following. And he, sa- and he, excuse me, and he says, It's best for man to do things that would be pleasurable. It's good for man to enjoy his work, his toil, his food. But doing pleasurable things and seeking after pleasure for pleasure's sake cannot be enjoyed. It's going to be vain. It's going to be striving after the wind. Only God can bring enjoyment. Only by serving God and pleasing God can we find true satisfaction in life. That is the message of the whole book of Ecclesiastes and particularly this chapter. So I have three, three points, three sections to this chapter. The first one I have titled, The Itch That Cannot Be Scratched. Another way of saying it would be, I can't get no satisfaction. The Rolling Stones came out with that song in 1965 and it became the most, one of the most popular rock and roll songs of all time. And besides bad English, it's bad in other ways. But the song is an accurate portrayal of this chapter. There is no satisfaction. I can't get it. I can't find it. The second part to this chapter is a goose chase with no goose. With no goose. The, the preacher pursues permanence and he finds death. He pursues something that will last and he finds that nothing lasts under the sun. So he chases after this goose and he finds when he gets to the end there is no goose. It was all a mirage. It was all his imagination. And thirdly and most importantly, the last few verses talk about solid joys and lasting treasures. None but Zion's children know. If you want to know what true joy and true satisfaction is, if you want to find satisfaction in life, then Zion's children are the only ones who know that. People who please God are the only ones who can be satisfied. So let me ask you a question starting in here. When will you be happy? When will you be happy? What's it going to take for you to be happy? What is it going to take for you to be satisfied? Maybe a, a better question or another question to ask is, are you satisfied now? If not, why not? But ask yourself this question. What would it take to make you happy? So finish the sentence for me. Don't do it out loud. Do it in your head. I will be happy when... 
When what? What is it for you? What will make you happy? So I wonder what your answer might be right now. I'm not going to ask for any volunteers, but would a thousand dollars do it? Ten thousand? A million? Would that make you happy? Maybe you want a new iPod or an iPad or an iPhone or a i something. Would that make you happy? Maybe you just want a, a new job. Maybe you want a new girlfriend or a boyfriend. Maybe you want a child. What is it that would make you happy right now? Now let me ask you a second question. Have you ever answered that question with anything Previously, have you ever answered that question with anything that you've actually gotten and it's made you happy? Anything. Have you ever said, if only I get to be 16 years old and can get my driver's license, I will be happy? Did it work? <laughs> for a while, yeah. Yeah, for a little bit. Didn't last very long, though, did it? That's the way these things work. Now we're getting to the point of this passage. We have an itch that cannot be scratched. We desire something to make us happy. It's how we're wired. It's how God has made us. We have this, this built-in pursuit of pleasure, that which will make us happy and satisfied. Now here we have a man, the wisest man who ever lived, according to God. I mean, we need to take God's word for it, right? The wisest man that ever lived... And he is going to demonstrate for us, he's going to test this and find out if there is anything that can make you happy. And he has every resource at his disposal. You see, we think, oh, you know, if I had a million dollars, I would be happy with that. But we don't have a million dollars, and there's no way to get it for most of us. Okay? So... We're going to always say, yeah, but I never could get it, so I never really was able to find out if it was going to work or not. But Solomon's not that way. He can do it. He can, he can find out. He's got the resources. Will it make me happy? I don't know. I'm going to go find out. That's what he's basically saying. I'm going to test this. So first of all, it says that he tries comedy. He tries laughter to see if that will help, if that will be, be satisfying to him. <laughs> And his conclusion is that that's just mad. That's just crazy. That's not going to give you any lasting satisfaction. Now, we like to laugh, don't we? I mean, that's pleasant. It's far more pleasant than crying many times. But laughter, just for the sake of being light, it's not going to satisfy very long. And so he turns next to something else. He turns to the bottle. He says, I tried cheering myself with wine. Again, th this isn't a whole lot different than laughter, actually, except that laughter, says in the Scripture, is a good medicine, right? And New Testament says a little wine is good medicine. It fixes what ails you, or it can. But see, the point is, there's something wrong with us. That's why we need medicine. There's something wrong with us. And we try to fix it 
with medicine. Whether the medicine is laughter, merry heart doeth good like a medicine, or whether it's wine, trying to escape the realities of life, kind of go off into another world, escape somewhere where it's all beautiful and happy, there's no problems. So he tried doing this. And he says here that even in the trying of this, he was still guided by wisdom. Now let me tell you something. This whole chapter, and especially this part of this chapter, falls under the category of do not try this at home. Because you are not wise like Solomon was. You're not going to pull this off. I'm not going to pull this off. If you or I try this, that Solomon tried here in this chapter, we're going to self-destruct. Because we're not going to be able to retain enough wisdom in this whole experiment. So you need to take Solomon's word for it. He, he, He managed somehow to maintain this wisdom. Remember I told you he was the wisest man that ever lived. It takes that kind of person to do this and not self-destruct. So he tried laughter, he tried wine, the bottle. And next he turns, in verse 4, to property. He undertook great projects. He built himself a magnificent house. took 13 years to build it with thousands of, of, of slave labor, of slaves doing slave labor. 13 years. He built houses. He planted vineyards. How many of you like a nice house? Everybody here like a nice house? Raise your hand if you like a nice house. Come on. Yeah, yeah, we like nice houses, right? We ooh and ah over that house that's going up down the street that is the house we always wanted to build but didn't, couldn't afford it. Yeah, we like nice houses. Well, Solomon had the nice house. He had the nicest house on the block. He had the nicest house in the city. He had the nicest house probably in the world at that time. So he tried it. He, he went all the way. He had an amazing house. But that wasn't enough. He also, he also had gardens. He planted gardens. Gardens are beautiful. Gardens are places of rest and peace and quiet. How many of you like gardens? How many of you like gardening? <laughs> I think gardens are much better than gardening myself. But what we like these places whether we like to participate in creating them or not is a different matter, but we like gardens. I think one of the reasons we like gardens is because we were created to live in a garden. When, when God created Adam and Eve, he put them in a perfect, beautiful garden. And we're all trying to get back there somehow. We all like those spaces, those places. It says here, he had, he had gardens and parks, and he, he planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. He made pools and And we like to sit by the water, and we like to eat the fresh fruit off the trees, enjoy the beautiful scenery and the quietness. It would be great to have our own little paradise, wouldn't it? A place we could escape. Here's this escapism happening again. A place we could escape the harsh realities of a fallen and broken world. But that still wasn't enough. So Solomon in verse 7 goes for leisure says he bought male and female slaves, and he had other slaves who were born in his house. He had something like 35,000 people in his household, according to uh, the, the, the account in 1 Kings 4. seems about 35,000 people at his disposal, people that could, would do anything he told them to do. 
Can you imagine living that kind of life, that kind of leisure? Would you be happy if someone would wait on you hand and foot all the time? You just said the word, and they would get for you whatever it is you wanted, or do for you whatever it is you wanted them to do. The sky is the limit. Your imagination is the limit. Can you imagine what kind of life that would be? It says he also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. He had wealth. He had significant wealth. Talking about herds and flocks, 1 Kings 4 tells us that Solomon had 12,000 horses. Now, how many of you like cars? Automobiles, trucks? Some of you don't. I know that. You th think of them as a necessary evil. Okay? But some of us are kind of car nuts. We, we like them. We, we enjoy being around that kind of transportation. Some people even collect the things. You know, they have a whole collection of cars sitting in the barn somewhere. Well, guess what? Solomon had 12,000 cars. I mean, they used horses for cars back then. So he had 12,000 of these parked in his, in his stable. He could go anywhere he wanted to go. He could pick the fastest horse, the Ferrari or the Lamborghini, take it out for a Sunday afternoon ride. Imagine what kind of life this was. Perhaps you think, if I had loads of money, if I was wealthy beyond compare, I would be happy. Well, Solomon amassed silver and gold, it says. He was properly rich. I mean, this guy, he was not millionaire rich. He was not billionaire rich. He was more the kind of, I can buy the country rich. Just buy the whole country. His income from taxes alone, we're told, was 23 tons of gold every year. 23 tons of gold. They said gold was so common in the city of Jerusalem that it was like stones, like rocks. Just everywhere you turn. We, we can't even fathom this kind of wealth. We wouldn't even know what to do with it. Wouldn't it be great if you never had to worry about money again? You never had to check in the checkbook to see how much money you had. You just, whatever, write the check. Wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that make you happy? We might think it would. And then there's music in verse 8. A lot of us like music. We don't all like the same kinds of music, but a lot of us like music. Music is one of those pleasures of life that God has given us. And so Solomon acquired men and women singers. Solomon owned all the top bands of his day. Every one of them. So how good would it be? How nice would it be? Now, we, we kind of have this advantage today. We can put the CD in or hook up the iPod or whatever, and we can play music from whoever and whenever and wherever, just like that. So we know a little bit about what Solomon could do. But see, in Solomon's day, there weren't any recording devices. So if you wanted to hear music, guess what? You needed musicians right here, right now to play for you, to sing for you. 
You couldn't just call up the track on the CD player. So Solomon had, these, had amassed this huge talent that he could call on whenever he wanted some music. It would be like the music camp here. It's great music, by the way, and, and all week they've been, the halls have been ringing with people singing and so forth. And it's just a very pleasant kind of sound, to me at least. But it would be like if I could take these music campers home with me, all 100 of, all 100 of them, and then sometime at 10 o'clock at night when I wanted to hear some piece of music, I would just ring them up and say, hey, come sing for me. That would be even better than having them come and stand around here and sing for us, wouldn't it? We just have our own private little concert. That might be good. And then Solomon turns to something else. He turns to sex. That's a pretty natural human pleasure. And he really goes for it. I mean, he doesn't hold back, just like everything else. So he marries 700 wives. 700. But that's not good enough yet. So he has 300 girlfriends. Kind of stripper girlfriends. He really... He really could indulge any fantasy he wanted, whenever he wanted. Well, he goes on. Wouldn't it be great to be famous? Wouldn't it be great for your name to be a household name all around the country? For people to see you on the national news, to fawn over you whenever you went somewhere. Wouldn't that be great? Solomon here says he was the greatest man that had ever lived. He became greater far than anyone in Jerusalem before him. And again, it says his wisdom stayed with him. See, that wouldn't happen for us. When we get a taste of fame, it tends to corrupt us pretty quickly. And we tend to to self-destruct. That's why you see so many athletes, so many Rock stars, so many actors, so many famous celebrities, their lives just go down the tube. We can't handle it. Solomon could, evidently. Solomon indulged himself in every area he could think of. It says in verse 10, he denied himself nothing. If he wanted it, he got it. That's the kind of test we're talking about here. He says he refused his heart no pleasure. And what was his conclusion in verse 11? He considered all this that his hands had done, all the work that it took to do it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All of it was empty, all of it was unsatisfying. Now listen, if Ecclesiastes is going to teach you anything, you must believe the preacher. You must believe Solomon when he says it's empty, it's unsatisfying. There's not a single pleasure this world could offer that could really, can really scratch where you're itching. And believe me, Solomon tried it all. And it all led to despair It's like trying to catch the wind. 
So as you look at this, at his life, and as you look at your life, one of the things I want to press on you this morning is this. You must believe Solomon's conclusion. You must believe what he says when he says, I've tried it all, and it all is unsatisfying. You know, life is kind of like a stationary bicycle. A stationary bicycle. Each generation gets on it and pedals furiously. Pedals as hard as they can till they die and fall off. And then the next generation gets on it and says, well, they didn't make it anywhere. They didn't go anywhere, but we're going to go somewhere. And they get on the bike and they pedal furiously. It's been happening this way since Solomon wrote this book. Every generation thinks we're going we're gonna to find meaning and purpose in life. We're going we're gonna to find that which satisfies. But it's just like driving around the cul-de-sac. It's a goose chase with no goose. And Solomon's conclusion is kind of hard for some of us because we're still of the mindset that there's something out there that can make me happy. There's something that if only I could experience or have I could be happy. I could be satisfied. But Solomon, after he considers all of this, after he considers all of these pleasures, all of these achievements, all of these accomplishments, he, he says, well, there is no satisfaction here. So he turns to trying to do something a little more noble. So if I can't have any personal satisfaction, maybe at least I can leave a legacy. Maybe at least I can leave something of value to those who come after me. But what does it say? It says, the person who comes after me, he's just going to be just like me. He's not going to find any satisfaction in it either. Maybe he can at least be important in his death, if not in his life. Maybe people will remember him and think back fondly to, to remember King Solomon's time? But no, it says here that after he's dead, people will kind of forget. Solomon has to reckon here with the cold, hard reality of life. And that reality is death. Death is the great equalizer. No matter who you are, no matter how many wives you have or how much property you have amassed, no matter how good a person you are in terms of worldly wisdom, Death comes to every man. And at that point of death, it doesn't matter whether you're a fool or whether you're a wise man, you're both subject to the same death. We can chase whatever it is we think that will make us happy, that will make us satisfied. We can chase it all the way to the grave. But... When we get there, we realize there never was a goose to start with. It's like trying to get to the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I saw a rainbow this week, and it reminded me of this. You know, the, you say, oh, there's the end of the rainbow. So you go over there. And I was driving up the road, and it looked like the rain, end of the rainbow was right in the road. So I'm driving towards the end of the rainbow. I'm thinking, huh, this is good. Pot of gold would be easy to find this time. Maybe right in the median. I get there, it's not there. It's moved on. It's further out of reach. 
That's what it's like to chase after satisfaction in this life under the sun without God. It's always out of reach. And we get there and we realize it wasn't there to start with. Life isn't fair. Life under the sun isn't fair. He talks about this in verses 18 and following. We work hard. We amass great accomplishments only to leave them all behind when we die. You can't take it with you when you go. And all the grand buildings and all the gardens and all the pools and all the the great architecture, all the big businesses that we might establish will be left to someone else when we die. And those people didn't even have to work for it. And they probably won't appreciate it. And they'll probably misuse it and squander it. And Solomon says it's, it's just great tra- uh, tragedy here. It's, it's a great evil. It's, what good is all this anyway? Why even try? And he begins to give himself over to despair just thinking about it. He couldn't even enjoy his work because he realized this hard work I'm doing when I'm gone, it's gonna, the value is going to go to somebody that doesn't even appreciate it. So why even work? Why even try? He couldn't even enjoy the things in life that were meant to give us pleasure. The very basics of life that God has given us. He couldn't even enjoy it because he couldn't get done thinking about how futile all of this was. You talk about a miserable position to be in. This man was miserable. But he doesn't end there. He doesn't leave us there. Verse 24. He says, he comes to the realization that there really is nothing better. In terms of satisfaction and pleasure in life, there's nothing better for a person that that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This is from the hand of God. Basically what he's saying is, don't pursue all this extravagant, self-seeking pleasure for your own benefit. But enjoy what God has given you. Enjoy what God has given you to do. There is pleasure in life. There should be. There must be. But it, it's not in ourselves. It says, apart from God, we can't even have any enjoyment in life. There's no possible pleasure without God providing it for us. So, why don't these things satisfy? What's the deal here? Why can't we enjoy ourselves enough to be satisfied? What's the, what's the way out of this wild goose chase that doesn't have a goose? How do, we, how do we find a way out of this cycle, this endless spiral? What's really going on here? And, and why are some of you still not quite believing Solomon? You still think there's some, something that will make me happy. Well, we need to turn to, we ought to turn to Romans chapter 1. Uh, we can find the answer there. Romans chapter 1 tells us about God who created us, about God who gave us all, the, all of himself and these things. It says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
So the wrath of God is being revealed because men are hard-headed and stubborn and suppress the truth. Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So the men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So our natural inclination is to suppress the truth. The truth has a hard time getting through our thick skulls. The truth is, we were designed, we were created by God to worship Him. To worship. To worship means to give ourselves to someone or something. But instead of worshiping God, the one who made us, our bent because of sin is to give ourselves to all sorts of other things. To worship all sorts of other things. And that could be money, could be power, could be fame, could be alcohol, could be sex, it could be laughter, could be the, the, the amassing of great wealth, whatever it is. We give ourselves to these things, these pursuits. The ironic and terrible tragedy here is that these are things that God has given us. They're gifts that He has given us. That He actually made. But when we worship the things that are made rather than the maker, we become foolish we find no satisfaction, no meaning in life. Paul goes on in verse 22, They claimed to be wise, but they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for mere images. Images, pictures of men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the created things rather than the Creator. This is our problem. This is our problem in the pursuit of pleasure. We want the stuff that God has made more than we want God. That's our problem. It's like this. You know, God is a loving Father. We are His children. And He gives us all these great things as gifts. And rather than enjoying these gifts the way He has designed them to be enjoyed, rather than enjoying them as coming from His hand and finding joy in Him, rather than doing that, we are like rebellious children. And we grab everything that He gives us. We grab it all to ourselves. And we tell God to go bug off and get out of my life. And we run away with all our stuff. And we foolishly think that with all the stuff, that we no longer need our father anymore. Just like the prodigal son in that exchange that Kenton read. Just give me the stuff, and then I don't need you. But we see, we see like the prodigal son, that the stuff wears out. The stuff gets used up. The pleasures are fleeting. And then we realize, you know what? Even the slaves of my father have it better than I do. None of the stuff makes us happy apart from God. But God says, I know you. 
I know how you work. I know how you should use all this stuff. I made it for you. And if you use it in relationship with me, I'll show you how it works and I'll give you great joy and great satisfaction. You see, this section from Ecclesiastes is not here to give us a moral lesson. It's not here to say, okay, nope, you gotta live a very bleak existence. No pleasure. Just, just eat rice and beans and drink water all your days. No, he's not saying that. He's not saying, don't do what Solomon did. Just flee from everything that is ple pleasant and pleasurable. Just try to be good boys and girls. No, that's not what he's saying. But that's often what Christians seem to be saying. People say, oh, you Christians, you, you don't have any fun. You don't, you don't enjoy life. Well, that may or may not be true. But the point is, we're not created to be enjoying life apart from the Creator. But when we are worshiping God, when we are pleasing God in our life, He brings us great joy and pleasure. And the things He has given us for our benefit are to be enjoyed. It's how we're designed. We are designed to enjoy things, to take pleasure in things. But only when God has given them to us and we enjoying them with him. You see, the problem is, the problem is we are satisfied too easily. We are satisfied way too easily. We quickly accept some pretty cheap thrills in exchange for everlasting joy. That's the great trade that it's talking about in Romans 1, where they exchange the glory of God how much better can you get? They exchange that for just pictures, not even the real thing. And that's what we tend to do with pleasure. C.S. Lewis said this, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. So our goal in life should, should be to enjoy the life that God has given us, to not be satisfied with our own pursuit of pleasure. And here's another, another thing that comes in here. You see, because we're too easily satisfied, because we're satisfied with the cheap imitations they never last, they never truly satisfy, and so we're always after the next big thing. But if we could find true satisfaction, we wouldn't need to look anywhere else. And so true satisfaction in God is the antidote to sin. Are you tempted? Are you tempted to, to use God's good gifts in ways that violate His plan, His purposes? Are you tempted to do that? It's probably because you're not really satisfied in Him. You're not really satisfied with what He has given you. And so you're willing to sin in order to get something. Or you're willing to sin because you don't get it. 
That says you're not really satisfied with the right, in the right way. Satisfied people don't need to sin. So do I like to eat? Yes. But I don't need to be a glutton to enjoy the food that God has given. You don't need to push the limits in sin when you're satisfied. In fact, in the end, sin is really no fun at all. Yes, it offers some cheap thrills, but in the end, it's not going to hold up. It's going to be like Solomon. He gets to the end of his life and he says, that was all useless. You don't want to be there. You don't want to go there. What you need is to find true satisfaction in God and God's gifts and doing things God's way. We don't need to abstain from all pleasure. No, God has designed pleasure for our joy, for our good. But you must, you must first seek God. And then you will be happy. Then you will have true joy. Instead of the fake imitation joy. 2 Timothy chapter 6. Or 1 Timothy chapter 6, excuse me says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You get that? Don't set your hopes on the things that God has given you. Set your hopes on God. The God who has given us richly all things to enjoy. That is the key to satisfaction. What are we to do then? We are to do good. We are to be rich in good works. We are to be generous, ready to share, storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. Do you want to truly live? Do you want to really live? Then you must live God's way. You must live Seeking after God, not after your own selfish satisfaction. And this, this itch that cannot be scratched, this goose that can be chased all the way, but there really isn't any goose, all of that should point us to a creator God, a God who has designed us for pleasure, pleasure of his kind. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that you have designed us so that we can enjoy the things that you give us. But we confess, Father, that we far too often are enamored by the stuff, by the gifts, by the good things that you've given us. And our focus turns away from you and to ourselves. So I pray that you would remind us once again this morning through the words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes, that all this stuff that we think will make us happy, it really won't. Only you can satisfy, and only in you can we really even enjoy anything in this life. And so may we passionately pursue and seek after you and your ways and find true satisfaction in real life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We invite you to turn your hymnals to a song that I think deals with this 
issue. Number 376. 